There are a lot of things that can be said about today's guest, Tony Luna. He is the founder and president of Tony Luna Creative Services, who since 1971 has helped thousands of photographers, filmmakers, and other creatives to start or reinvent their careers. He has served as the artist rep, producer, and executive producer for Wolf & Company Films, and has been involved in countless commercial still and film productions. He is an adjunct professor at the Art Center College of Design, as well as the author of How to Grow as a Photographer, Reinventing Your Career. He's accomplished a lot more, but what really defines him is his insight and the generosity he shares with those he works with to shape their personal and creative lives. You couldn't ask for anyone better to be in your corner. After a moment, our conversation with Tony Luna. Now, I really enjoyed um, taking your class last term. Thank you. It uh, gave me a lot of stuff to, to think about. And it gave me a perspective um, in terms of not just my career, but my work in a way that had been really scattered Mm -hmm. up until that point and uh, your class really allowed me to sort of refine what I'd been thinking about mm -hmm. um, which I thought was kind of fascinating for people who, who you know who don't know um, well let's first start off with you know who you are because I think that's always a good place to mm -hmm. start you've been in the photo industry for quite a while yeah. serving in a variety of different roles but why don't you briefly kind of explain you know what that what that's been it's hard to encapsulate in just a few minutes, but basically I would have to start out with the narrative of how I got into this. Yeah. And photography and, and film have become my life. It wasn't anything that I started out intentionally to be a part of. It kind of came to me in the form of um, back in the Jurassic period in 1971, um, I was uh, in the... Uh, I had been in the army, uh, and I had met a f met a friend that um, uh, eventually went on to get his degree in photography at the Art Center College of Design. Mm -hmm. And um, at the same time, I was getting um, uh, after after we got out of the army, I got my degree in psychology. But when I got out of college and I was working in the in the field, uh, counseling. Uh, young people in the Los Angeles County Probation Department. It just wasn't fulfilling. It just didn't meet my expectations. And uh, and and psychology was a great place to start, but it really didn't seem to fit with what I was doing. And uh, then this friend of mine, who I met in the Army, who had gotten his degree in, in um, photography, asked me if I wanted to uh, be his rep. And I said, I don't know, what's a rep? So uh, he said, oh, it's going to be so great. He says, we're going to go to exotic places, meet beautiful women. You're going to go out and show the portfolio, and, and, and uh, people just hire us to go do great things. And, and then uh, you'll be in charge of negotiating and be in charge of estimating. And, oh, in charge of finding clients, that's a good idea, too. And, um, and then I'll, I'll just spend all my time shooting, and then you can, well, you can also work on the billing. And then when we get paid, you can figure out. Uh, who's going to pay? Uh, who you know? How we're going to take care of paying people and all the glamorous and, uh, stuff. All the glamorous stuff, yeah. And I thought, oh, I, actually, it does sound kind of interesting. I have no idea. I said I had, I had had no background in marketing or business or anything else. 
But just seeing what he was doing sounded intriguing. Well, the first year that I sort of made my way uh, in in the field, uh, I ended up, of course, being an assistant because we needed an assistant. You know, and we couldn't afford one on our early shoots. And I would sometimes write articles that he would photograph, and then I would be the, be the assistant. So, you know, sometimes I was getting paid three different ways for the same job. <laughs> there was something about the whole idea of of working with people and bringing them together and, and then seeing this thing that he would create and that I had some part to do in the background. It just fascinated me. So uh, I decided to stick with it, even though the first year that I, I worked with him in, in 1971, as I said, I only made $1,875. And even back then, for a single guy, it wasn't enough to, yeah. to, to live on. So I figured I have to do something more than just schlep around. I, I, have to, I have to really get serious about this. So I, I, I read and I took classes or whatever I could. Uh, there still wasn't a lot of information. And I, I tried to ask other reps. And most of the reps that I talked to were very, very guarded. They were obnoxious, as a matter of fact. They wouldn't tell me any of their secrets, so to speak, um, because they, they didn't want the competition. And uh, they just said, uh, you know, get lost, kid, and you know, figure it out yourself. Until I met one gentleman uh, by the name of Pete Van Law, who uh, was a, uh, a rep but also a producer because his photographer was now starting to do film. Uh, a gentleman by the name of uh, Cal Bernstein, who eventually got together with, with some big-name talent in Hollywood, and, and they went on. And that inspired me to see that I could actually turn this into a career. It wasn't just jumping from job to job. It was actually a career. The most inspiring thing that Pete said to me was, stay in touch. And that implied a future, that if I had somebody I could talk to about, am I doing the right thing when I call this guy up three times a week, or should I back off? Or, yeah. you know, what happens if you don't get paid on a job? You know, <laughs> you know, important things, but you don't see them spelled out anywhere and how you handle them. And, and Pete was very, very inspirational and, and a mentor. And uh, I tried not to bug him a lot, but I, I did ask his opinions on things. Eventually, the, the business uh, grew. Uh, we got a studio. My business partner, Dan Wolf, uh, uh, is very entrepreneurial, so he put together a beautiful studio, and uh, so somebody had to manage what was going on. So for a while, I was manager and rep and assistant. <laughs> you know, so things just kept growing. It was built by necessity. Yeah. Eventually, when enough money was coming in, we could hire an assistant. Then we could hire a bookkeeper. Then we could, you know, expand out. Uh, it took probably 12 or so years before we finally got into uh, uh, forming a production company and doing film, which became Wolf and Company Films. And uh, we did a lot of television commercials, mainly for the types of clients that we were doing still work prior to that. And uh, that was pre predominantly in the food industry. So... Uh, a lot of food photography, but, but not exclusively. We're also doing motorcycles. We're doing all kinds of other things as well. But, but most of the money that put my daughter through college was from, uh, was, was from the food industry. You know, the, when people think about getting into this industry they, and they hear about stories like yours, they think that, that, that times were remarkably different, that what it takes in order to become a photographer today is much different than it was in the 80s or the 70s or, or before that. They're saying it's a completely different world and the same rules don't apply. But I think your experience, and I think the experience of a lot of people that I've talked to, 
the underlying core doesn't change. The mechanics may change, but one of the things you mentioned is the relationships that you build mm -hmm. and is, is really sort of core and always has been. Um, you talk to a lot of people who want to reinvent their careers. Talk about that, the importance of that, whether you're starting off or whether you're starting all over again on, on, on a whole new track. Well, what you're touching on is so, so relevant because it transcends time. Just as you pointed out, there are core issues at play. Yes, times are dramatically different than they were back in 1970 on the surface because there's new technologies, there's a proliferation of, of people running around with, with digital cameras that are calling themselves photographers, there's more competition in the marketplace and all that. But there are certain things that are inextricably the same, and that is you have to get back to your core values. You always have to get back to your core values, whether you're, you know, whatever kind of business you're involved in, especially in an industry where you're dealing as a creative entrepreneur. You have to really pay attention to the fact that it all starts with play. It all starts with the ability to kind of step outside of yourself and just explore and discover and find what it is that thrills you, <laughs> frankly. You know, something that when you're doing it, you get so involved that you're lost in it. Yeah. And that's, that's that point. And, and a lot of people that I meet force the issue that, because they say, I want to be a photographer, I want to be a filmmaker, I want to be an illustrator, graphic designer, and anybody in the creative arts, they initially start out by, well, what's going on in the industry? I'll make myself just like everybody else so that I can get out there and get that kind right. of work. And my viewpoint and the people that I work with in our, our class, Crafting a Meaningful Career, is I try to start out with, what do you do when you play? What is it that you do creatively that you get annoyed if somebody disturbs you because you're having so much fun? In a larger sense, it's what is it that you do creatively that when you're doing it, you feel as though you're a conduit for something larger? And I think that's really pivotal here to, to appreciate the fact that when you're doing it, there's, you, you feel like there's some force that you're a part of, that you're kind of riding a wave. Now, if we can define what that is, then the next step is to go from playfulness to, okay, what skills do you need to be able to do a better job at what you're doing as a, as a person who's, who's doing this playful thing? Once we start to accumulate the skills, now we start finding out there's variations on the themes. Now that's when you start finding your own voice. Yeah. And to get right down to it, the very most important element after that discovery is what individuates you, what makes you unique in the marketplace, what makes you feel as though there are certain people that when you approach them and you start talking about them, they'll get it. You don't have to keep trying to prove something to them. They will, they will essentially understand it. Yeah. So now if we go to that next phase, that's... Well, Where before, do you find that? Before we go to that next phase, mm -hmm. I think there's, a, there's, there's several walls, of, several impediments that, that can hamper getting further. One of the things is, I think that if you have something that's playful to you, that's creative, that you love to do, and I know it is for me, sometimes I think, yeah, this is fun to do, but who the hell would pay me to do this? Not so much pay me, but realizing that there's a value to it that it's worth pursuing the skill sets and going further and further. And I think at that point, that's where a lot of people just stop. Mm -hmm. 
because they don't see the value in it because they may not see someone else who's doing something like that or who's getting compensated in, in a way that's translating into a living. So I understand what you're saying in terms of discerning the skill set, but I think there's that emotional baggage that goes along with that that can hamper one's ability to be able to practically discern what the skill sets that are associated with that thing that they're having fun with so they can start making progress and moving forward. Does that make sense? makes a great deal of sense because, curiously enough, prior to sitting down with you, I was just having a conversation with another gentleman talking about those barriers to entry. Mm-hmm. perceived or real, they still are barriers to entry. You know, fear of people not understanding, fear of being too successful too soon, fear of being a failure and uh, being laughed at or whatever. Every time you listen to an interview or you read about an individual who has so-called made it, everybody goes through this. You just, you, you have to go back to that initial part about discovering the passion and feel so so close to it that you say, I will overcome those particular barriers to entry. That is to say, one way to do that is to try to determine who might be like-minded individuals, people who appreciate the fact that you really love photographing Formula One cars or croquembouche and soufflés and, and uh and, and McDonald's quarter pounders. I mean, whatever it is, if you're a food shooter or you're a still shooter or you're action adventure or whatever it is, you have to find people, and, and that's, that's tough because you'd have to do a lot of research, but you have to find people that understand it and need that kind of work, which goes into this area that I call the, the passion first marketing paradigm, which in a succinct form starts out, what do I love to do? I mean, what do I really love to do? creatively, and then who needs what I love to do. That's really important, finding those people that need what you love to do, people that can actually understand the value, as you've pointed out. When they see it, they say, I can use this somewhere. They might not be able to use it today when you go in and show them the portfolio, but if you stay in touch with them, they may call you up in two years or six months. It, it, you never know. But it shouldn't be a crapshoot. It shouldn't be you take your book to everybody and hope that somebody gets you. You go to see somebody with a purpose. And you go to see somebody with a purpose. You nurture the relationship. Getting back to the importance of relationships. You, you nurture the relationship so that you can help them in some way. And they will, when the time is right, find something for you. I know that sounds terribly ambiguous and antithetical to a to a, a you know capitalistic venture you know <laughs> that they're going to find you but the fact is that if you have something for them then they will they will respond now you have to stay in their field of vision you have to find out what kind of media they pay attention to and is there some way that you can get in there have an article written about you or or do a press release, or what is it that they pay attention to? They go to certain conferences. You should go to those conferences too. You you know do uh, have mailings that you can send out to them that are inobtrusive, but something that will be informative to them so that they can use that in being able to make a file on what you do. Is there uh, emails that you can send out? And you have to stay in touch with people at approximately every two to three months and let them know what you're up to so that they are aware. But it's meaningful to them. It's not not pestering them. So there's a lot of different ways of doing that, but you have to think in terms of a campaign to keep yourself relevant to the people that 
already understand what you're doing. Well, and, and with most most photographic businesses, you often have a core group of clients who you Absolutely. use regularly, who you can depend on year to year, hopefully, mm-hmm. you know, to sort of sustain you. So I think part of what you're talking about is instead of trying to be everything for everyone, trying to find that small group of people or businesses that really get you, that are as passionate about what you're doing as you are about what you're doing, and being able to develop and sustain that relationship over a period of time and not just that one gig, because otherwise you're constantly pursuing you know, the opportunities that are going to allow you to do what you, what you want to do. Yeah, it's, it's very curious that when you're going after certain, a certain target market, how another market may surface. As somebody may hear of you, you, we don't know where this comes from. All we know is that you have to put it out there. Mm-hmm. And uh, yes, a couple of days ago, I was doing an interview with Ted Orland, who was the uh, co-author of uh, Art and Fear, but also was an assistant to uh, Ansel Adams. And one of the things that he mentioned in our, in our interview was that um, a- Ansel when he first started out, or I don't know if when he first started out, but, but to a large degree was uh, hired by the uh, Bureau of the Interior or, or some, some governmental group to take uh, these environmental photographs. He did them because he was there. You know, mm-hmm. he, was, he, he was in the, the Yosemite area or the Central Coast or, or, or wherever he was in, in you know, Hernandez with shooting the moonrise. But as a result of that, other people started picking up on him. It wasn't necessarily anything direct, but, for example, Edwin Land contacted him with a Polaroid and said, uh, uh, I'd, I'd like you to test out our, our cameras, I mean, our camera backs and, and our film, and just go out and have some fun with them, and it, it, here's, a, here's a little money. And he got a stipend from uh, the Polaroid Corporation. And so occasionally when he wasn't doing anything else, he'd go out and shoot stuff on, uh, on Polaroid film, mm. which that opened up doors for him. For other people, when they saw that, that, so what I'm saying is that in every one of these stories, if it were, you know whoever it is that you talk to, and in other fields too. I mean, if you talk in the field of music, you're talking in the field of art, uh, you know, other other creative forms. There are these ancillary aspects that kind of pick up because people become familiar with your style. They become familiar with your with your aesthetic. They become familiar with your approach, and they want to be a part of that. You know, sometimes it turns into a commercial thing, sometimes it's a fine art thing, but it, it always seems to generate new interest yeah. as long as you're staying true to your core values. What's that thing that you really give a damn about? What is that thing that when you wake up in the morning you say, today is a great day because today I get to do that thing that I love to do most? Yeah. And when you go to bed at night you say, that was extremely satisfying, I can hardly wait for tomorrow. As opposed to, you know, I'm going to pull the sheets over my head because I've got to go through some sort of drudgery or I have to do something that I don't really want to do. And I, I, I don't say that cavalierly. I mean, I understand we all have bills to pay. You know, sometimes you have to take on that catalog of widgets uh, to pay the bills. But if it affords you the opportunity to be able to do that other thing that you've always wanted to do, there's, uh, there's, there's no problem with that as long as you're still going after that thing. Every photographer that I've been honored to interview that has stayed with it has had some pet project that they've, that they've always paid attention to in one form or another. And it's exciting to see what it is that is most meaningful to them when they finally uh, get a chance to, to, to break away from the, 
the chains of obligation and to be able to do that. And if fortunately they find a, a sponsor to be able to finance that particular type of thing. Yeah. You, you teach both students who are starting their careers mm -hmm. as well as people who are trying to reinvent theirs. Mm -hmm. Who has the bigger challenge? Is it someone who's really had no experience mm -hmm. doing anything at all? Or is it someone who's had a lifetime of experience doing something that they want to change up or reinvent? Or I teach mostly younger students, and I teach some older students. But I think in terms of people actually making a career, I, 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 was, I was really thinking, who has the bigger challenge in terms of making something happen? I don't think that reinvention in and of itself necessarily means I'm starting over, okay? And as a matter of fact, that Crafting a Meaningful Career class originally was titled Reinventing Your Career. But that title put some people off because they thought reinventing means I've got to scrap everything I ever did, I've got to go back to school, and I've now got to become a computer programmer or whatever it is I have to do because that's what everybody wants right today, mm -hmm. you know. The fallacy in that kind of thinking is that that may be what people want today, but what are they going to want tomorrow and the next day? Because styles change, uh, you know, emphasis changes, you know. I always go back to that same thing about what is it that is very important to you to do and then find the marketplace for it. Because that way you don't have to keep changing styles. Now, you may have to redefine your tactical approach but you don't have to reinvent the strategy. Mm -hmm. In other words, if I look back on my own uh, livelihood for the past 40 years that I've been in, involved in photography and film, there's something on the order of about every three to five years that there's some sort of big change that happens. It's, that's maybe you lose a client, or maybe there's a, a major recession, maybe there's a personal setback, but for some reason... There's these cycles or, or periods. I, I, they're, they're not distinct. It's not like, oh, God, it's you know, five years and a, something's going to happen. It's mm -hmm. just it hap stuff happens. M my inclination is to help people find, okay, what have you done in the past that you really love to do? And then what other kind of skills have you picked up along the way that can help you to make the transition into this next thing? Not as a, a reinvention in the terms of starting all over, but as a transition into something better, something more exciting, something more gratifying for you, something more meaningful, definitely. Because I find as people get older, this, this topic of meaningfulness is very important. Yeah. It's, you know, maybe, maybe I'm doing something for a cause that I believe in, or, or maybe there's this, this particular aspect of culture that I've always wanted to explore, and now now's my chance. I can't begin to tell you how many times I've had people in my classes halfway through the term walk in, I mean, start out the term with a long face and saying, I've got this job and it sucks and uh, I, mean, I know I'm going to have to change and blah, blah, blah. And then halfway through the term, they walk in the door and they got a big smile on their face and I say, what happened? I said, I got fired today. <laughs> and I go, holy crap, what am I going to do? I feel this responsibility to help them. And they say, no, 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 now I get a chance to do what I've always really wanted to do. Talk about barriers to entry. You know, barriers can be, I have a job can be a barrier for some people, you know. Right? It can be the excuse to not take the action. But I have to be realistic because if associated with that job is a, a pension and a paycheck and, and benefits, uh, you know, there's, I, I can't tell somebody to, to stop that. But I can help them to figure out, given the chance, what would you do 
and then how can we help you get there? In the 40 or so years that I've, I've worked as an artist representative and, and producer, and, and, and we've, I, I've been very fortunate to work with ex- extraordinary talent and uh, you know, see our work up uh, different places, uh, all that gratification. Never once did somebody say, when I was doing that kind of work, you changed my life, or you helped me to see something in myself that was really worthwhile. I can honestly say that I get those kinds of letters now because people recognized that they just needed somebody to give them a, a, a sense of hope, and they needed a little direction. I, I, I don't put myself up as, as anybody who can make big differences, but I can help people in a room. <laughs> I, I, I don't think of myself as, um, as the instructor. I think of myself more as a, a Sherpa, guiding, <laughs> guiding the discussion in a classroom with very sophisticated and intelligent and professional people who have got something else they want to do, but they're not quite sure how to get there. Yeah. And in most cases, not always, but in most cases, there's, there's probably a way to do it. It may take six months. It may take a year. It may take a couple of years. Um, but, but, the, but the closer they get to that thing that they want to do, you can see it f- physically in their, mm-hmm. in their attitude and their face. And their... I, I feel the same way about the show. Mm-hmm. But that's the way it evolved. I mean, part of it was sort of a, a selfish enterprise because mm-hmm. I just wanted to hear a show that I wasn't hearing at the time because so much mm-hmm. focused in about equipment. Mm-hmm. And then later on, it just gave me access to people who I really wanted to talk to. And it started giving me a reputation and a name. But what started happening is that the show started resonating for the very same reasons that you you said, that it gave people an opportunity to think about what they wanted to do with their photography and in some cases what they wanted to do with their lives and and for a large part that's probably been the most gratifying thing about doing doing the show and why I want to do more with that see and I and I applaud that effort so much that uh, just the other day I ran across some papers that I was I was trying to organize and I had printed out the um, piece that you wrote in which you were talking about your uh, your own personal project of going around Los Angeles, and also you wrote about the timeline that you did in the in the classroom. Mm-hmm. I was fascinated by what you wrote because it was so surgically honest, and I, I really appreciate your your candor. I also appreciated the responses from the people that wrote in and, and made comments about that show, or about, or about that blog piece rather. Man. I, I was just, I was amazed, I shouldn't be, I guess, but I was amazed at how many people said, uh, said, yeah, I, I really understand where you're coming from, that thing about I'm not good enough, uh, uh, you know, that, that's one example of a barrier to entry, is this, mm-hmm. is this um, fantasy, you know, saying, oh, jeez, I'm not good enough. And for some people, they just might leave it there. But for other people, they'll say, I'm not good enough, well, why am I not good enough? Well, who says it? Why does it have to be? Well, let me try a little bit. A different approach to it. Let me start with a different attitude about this, and now work it through. So, I was really fascinated by the responses and the comments that were made to that to that blog piece that you did for Kelly. No, I, I appreciate yeah. that. You talked about getting excited about getting up in the morning about what you have to do, mm. and because you've been in the industry for that long, for a lot long, you've seen a bunch of. Damn, you're making me sound like balance. an old fart. <laughs> I'm catching God. up, man. I'm not too far Oof. behind you. Yeah, but. You know, whether you've been at it for five years or whether you've been at it for several decades, I think that part of it is how do you sustain that? Because so many photographers, after 
a certain amount of time, they burn out and it becomes what started off as a passion becomes drudgery. It mm -hmm. becomes a necessity. And that love, I mean, we've talk, you talked earlier about personal projects and I think that's certainly a, a, a big part of it. How are you able to sustain that in your own life, in your own work, so that you are as excited as you were years ago? That's an excellent question, and uh, it's, it's curious that you even asked that, because I was just thinking about the last few weeks, now that we're uh, coming at the end, at the end of the, the Christmas holidays and the New Year's and, and all, um, I have a variety of friends that are older than myself, and I have a lot of friends and, and, and acquaintances that I have through my teaching. And I love the diversity of the, the, the thought. I love watching people grow and evolve. And I'm in a unique position uh, as primarily as a, as a teacher now. I still do a little bit of production. But I'm in a unique position now where I can give back something from my experiences. I'm always in the position of learning. That's what keeps me going. Is I, I love my older friends because uh, you know because of their wisdom and their experience and their support. Um, but there's only so long that I can listen to them talk about how wonderful retirement is, <laughs> and uh, you know how, what their golf score is, et cetera. And then then we go into the conversation. Ultimately, goes into how many milligrams of Lipitor you're taking. <laughs> um, but then you know you 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 have the the, the students who are just marvelous because they have really good bullshit radar and you could be standing up there expounding on something that you've been saying for the past 30 years and they'll say wait a second that doesn't make any sense in today's world have you heard about this new app that you know takes care of that so so it keeps me on my toes and i think that's what is really fascinating to me is the is the fact that there's new things evolving that there's old things that have to be appreciated that there is uh an opportunity to be able to to help people, and uh, and and, and use the word selfish earlier, uh, I, I I understand and I appreciate it. I, th I think we need another word in our vocabulary. That's that selfish has a has a uh, an intonation of being something negative. But there are times when we have to be um, we have to focus on what is important to us, mm -hmm. and uh, and and I I. I have to admit that uh, at least one major factor is that I'm, I'm blessed by virtue of, of all the people that I, that I come in contact with, but especially I'm blessed with my, my wife who has the attitude of, if I'm doing what I love to do, then everything's okay. And she's extremely supportive in that. Uh, she's seen me when, we, when I was making a heck of a lot more money, but I was very, very depressed. I was unenthusiastic. I was grumpy, but I was doing stuff that I frankly didn't believe in. But mm. you know, and then having the conversation with her that I had to change, and she was totally there for me, made me realize that it's a very finite amount of time we have here on this planet, and to be working so hard just to get a bigger paycheck um, wasn't the reason I was here. Uh, the the reason, if I if I do put a, a reason to it is to be part of this this continuum to give back and and to and to share. Yeah. That's really what it comes down to.
One of the big fears that people have is a fear of loss of one form or another. Mm-hmm. Um, you experienced a big loss, which I think was very pivotal in your life, which was a fire that uh, devastated uh, your home. How did that loss, which is a very significant one, how did that color your perspective on loss and the choices that you made subsequently, not only in your personal life, but in terms of your professional life? Yeah, you know, my, my wife, uh, it did, you know, getting back to the interplay between h- how your personal life and your professional life uh, work, um, my wife has been uh, a hospice volunteer for many years. So she deals with physical loss in a very direct way. When our home burned down, and it was due to a freak electrical accident that we couldn't have controlled, the top half of the house was completely burned, and the bottom half was was ruined from smoke and water. And 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 my first reaction was, of course, uh, why did this happen to me? You know, I've got so many things going on in my life, and now I've got to rebuild my house and all, all the negative stuff that I was going through. And then eventually going through stages, which were very similar to what my wife would be dealing with uh, in talking about the Kubler-Ross, uh, um, you know, stages of uh, dealing with loss. And instead of a, a death, it was, a, it was a, a, a loss of a physical thing, uh, the house. So obviously it wasn't as important. No one was, was uh, permanently injured. There were a couple of firemen that, that were injured uh, in the fire, but, but uh, they, they did okay. I guess what, what I learned from that whole experience was that the family had to, had to work even harder together uh, because we had to schedule time, we had to rely on each other, we had to be supportive, uh, we, had to, um, we had to collaborate more, we had to communicate more than we ever had before. After going through that kind of a loss, you can either get further apart from each other or get closer, and we were fortunate in that we got closer, and I think it was largely due to the fact that my wife kept a good perspective on, on what we were doing from moment to moment. Losing a job can be the same way. Or losing your idea of what your job should be can be the same thing, right? You know, they're very prevalent ideas of how the world should work. And in the case of um, dealing with, uh, with, with the loss of the house and then saying, wait a second, if I were to lose my job tomorrow, what would I do? Okay. Well, then I'd try and go out and get a better job. Well, if that's a possibility that exists, then why don't I do that now? <laughs> you know, why wait for the house to burn down, mm-hmm. right? Okay, well, what else will I need? Well, I'm going to need support. I'm going to need people who understand where I'm coming from. I'm going to need some, some special skills. I'm going to need some... Okay, so what do I need to do that? Well, I have to take a class or I have to, or I have to talk to a, a, a consultant or I have to do something. There's something that has to be done. Once you start check, making that checklist and start going through the process, then you gain momentum. Then you gain the empowerment back that was given up through the loss. Because loss really is about a sense of losing power. Power is an illusion, but we're not even going to go there. Yeah. But we always think we have this power. And then when something intervenes, you know, as a divorce or losing a job or or loss of a loved one, or you know, some cataclysmic event, we have options on how we're going to come out the other end. There's a healthy way and a not-so-healthy way. The healthy way requires reaching out, being humble, saying there's certain things I can't do, well, then I better learn what I need to do yeah. to, to, to get around these things. Well, actually, um, uh, 
uh, I was helping my wife work on a, on a lecture called um, The Gift of Disaster that she, uh, that she gives on the topic of, of, uh, of loss. It can be, you know, it can be a, a gift if you look at it from a certain, not that I'm telling people to go out and create disasters, <laughs> but it's an attitudinal thing. But you can't do it alone. Yeah. Yeah. It, you know, that's very important. And, I, and it goes back to how we started this conversation in terms of the community. Mm-hmm. And I think part of it is giving voice to the fact that this is something that you want. Mm-hmm. And I think that a lot of people, myself included, often are reluctant to give voice to what we really want, even to the mm-hmm. people we're closest to. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, we don't want to look foolish or we don't want to say that we want this and then it doesn't end up panning out and all this other stuff. But mm-hmm. I think that th- that is often can be the very first step because mm-hmm. it can end up, end up that it connects you with other people who may, who may not necessarily be like-minded or have the same interests, but will say, you know, there's, some, there's somebody you should talk to then. Mm-hmm. You, you mm-hmm. do that a lot in your in mm-hmm. your class, and it was mm-hmm. interesting to hear the stories about how that dynamic happens just as a result of people being brave enough to say, uh, this is something that I want to do. I don't mm-hmm. know how I'm going to do it. Mm-hmm. I feel a little foolish admitting that I want to do it, mm-hmm. but I'm putting it out there, and then how remarkably things start to start yeah. moving, even though you may not have a definitive plan of how to achieve that. Can I say and have an amen here? Okay, because the the thing is, first of all, is in in my own little world, the way I look at things is there's 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 five steps. I always have to reduce things to some some uh, ridiculously simplified method, but but I see that there's five steps that are necessary to go through that process, and they, and I I call it transition analysis because it sounds cool, um, but transition analysis really is something akin to the creative process and that is first you have to recognize that there's a problem if you don't recognize it then it doesn't exist or you're ignoring it or you're in denial so that that it's a non-issue okay but once you recognize that there is a problem or a challenge or something to be dealt with the next thing is you have to assess what you have going for you what kind of people and things do you have going what what are the what are the things you don't have going for you maybe you have to get rid of some things in your life maybe you have to make some changes but but there's that assessment phase so we've got first is recognition second is is, is assessment third is creating a plan it's important to create a plan that is something that is is not so overly structured that that it's a, it's a guilt burden but it's something that helps you have a sense of direction the next part is to actually implement that plan. And that's really hard, you know, to actually. So there, there's another example of why you need support. You need people that, that you trust that are going to tell you, how are you doing on that thing? You know, are you getting ahead? Are you, are you moving, moving forward? And then the fifth element in those five steps is validation. How well did you do? What did you, what did you do wrong? What did you do well? What can you salvage? What, can you, what did you learn from this? And that leads you on to the next phase of recognition, which starts the whole cycle again. So that, well, that's, the, that's the, the little template that I set up in my head. So in, in talking about, about rehabilitating or whatever, I have to almost stop and think, okay, where am I in those five st- stages? Am, am I just stuck in one of them? Do I need to move on? Uh, do I need some help here? I mean, a lot of it comes down to, are you humble enough to ask for help? You know, you got to reach out. 
I am definitely of the opinion, though, that when you do start asking, that a lot more help comes through than you thought you were ever going to you were going to get. And you don't necessarily get it from the direct source. Sometimes it just comes out of left field. But you got to put it out there. Mm-hmm. It's an it's you know I don't want to get into all kind of psychobabble or anything. Oh yes, I do, but not here. But but it 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 really is directly uh, related to having the humility to just say I need help. Yeah. All right. And when you do, then there's like the sigh that goes on. It's like whoa, I'm glad I got got that off my chest. Now okay, what's what's happening? Right. And part of that is being aware, being willing to accept. Because there may be stuff right in front of you, but we're not seeing it because we're so stuck in our poor me kind of attitude. So it's keeping your eyes open, too, at the same, at, at the same time, that kind of awareness. Now, curiously enough, I was at a swap meet with my wife, and she was off looking at some god-awful thing, bartering with somebody about, I don't know, a fainting couch or something. And I was looking at a book. Uh, I picked up a book that was um, for sale, it was a Joseph Campbell, of course. You know, talk about serendipity. Uh, it was um, Hero of a Thousand Faces. And I just arbitrarily opened the book, started reading, and Joseph Campbell had this statement in there that common to all cultures, to all stories of mythology, there's five stages that the protagonist goes through. And there's the stage in which they recognize that there's a problem, the monster's going to eat the village or whatever, right? Or they have to go find the golden hoo-ha, whatever it is. There's the assessment phase where the individual has to assess what they have going for them, what they need for their armament, or they have to go get the special amulet or whatever. There's the planning phase in which they have to plan out what they're going to do and how they're going to you know, attack the Minotaur or whatever it is. And then there's the doing phase, the implementation phase, and that's followed by the validation coming back to the village and saying, hooray, we saved the golden whatever, okay? It's the same five steps, right? Mm-hmm. You know, what we're talking about is the hero's journey. The hero's journey plays out in, in mythology, but it also plays out in our own everyday lives, that we have to stop and take account of things. We have to slow down enough to be able to recognize that. It's hard to do when you're, when you're trying to, you know, pay attention to a lot of other ex- outside forces. But when you do that and you stay, and you stay focused and you, and you have values, you've got to understand what your values are, and you stay close to those values, then, well, of course everything's going to work out. I mean, it just sort of figures. But it's not without a lot of perseverance I, you know, you have to have to put that into the equation. Mm-hmm. Is is sticking with it, you know? Is you know not watching that next wheel of fortune, but you know picking up the, you know taking that time out of your life and doing it. Not that I have anything against wheel of fortune. Well, actually, I do. It's kind of a stupid <laughs> program, but 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 I mean, you know, there's distractions. Mm-hmm. It's real easy, real easy to get distracted. But if you know there's something bigger and better waiting for you, then why not? Why not, yeah. you know, go after it? Well, the last question I always ask is I ask my guests to recommend usually another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore, and it can be anyone. But I leave it open to you because you know so many creative people, so it doesn't necessarily have to be a photographer, but uh, if, if it is one, feel free. Oh, man, that's too big a list. 
Uh, as I mentioned, I just finished talking with Ted Orland, uh, and um, his his classic book, Art and Fear, is, uh, is one that everybody should uh, uh, occasionally look at, as, as you and I have discussed. You know, uh, just a big fan of so many different people. In my first book, I, I wrote about Jay Maisel and Douglas Kirkland and, and Richard Horowitz and uh, you know Pete Turner and it just goes on and on and on. There are some great people that have that have left an incredible legacy, uh, and they all started out with something on the order of somebody gave me a camera and I went out and I took a picture and all of a sudden I was hooked. And that you know, and the story starts there. The photography is is marvelous in that way because it's a passport. You know, you have a camera with you, you can go anywhere and see things, you know, <laughs> and, and then you can share them. That's even better. Uh, so, the, so the long and the short of it is that I, I would be hard put to say anyone in specific, but what I, what I would say is art in general is, and, and how artists became artists uh, is, is the, the topic that fascinates me most, whether or not we're talking about Picasso or Frank Stella or, you know, whomever it may be. I'm also blessed with uh, with a granddaughter that loves to go to museums, so uh, so she we, we drag we thought we were dragging her, but now she's dragging us to museums. <laughs> you know, I'm, uh, I've it's given me an opportunity to be reintroduced to a lot of people because I'm I think more than the photography exclusively, I'm interested in the creative process of how anybody does something that they really love so much doing. And then turn that into an occupation. I turn it into a career. It's not a job. Yeah. It's something that they love doing. They may have had to have sacrificed something along the way for it, but the rewards are much greater. The Candid Frame is supported by donations by people just like you. You can contribute to the show by visiting the website at thecandidframe.com where you'll find other resources about our guests as well as articles and links we think you'll find valuable. The show is edited by Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. Music is by Kevin McLeod. And this is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame. Candid Frame.